The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. And now, it's time for Radio Jobline with your host, Scott Possessor, right here on 103.9 LI News Radio. Welcome, everybody. It must be Saturday afternoon from 2 to 3 p.m., or it might be Wednesday night from 9 to 10 p.m. We're on twice a week. Talk about your career, dissect the job market, talk about every way to be successful in the workplace, every workplace issue. There isn't anything we don't talk about here on Radio Jobline. In fact, the last couple of weeks, we have devoted the show completely to artificial intelligence, and I learned a lot uh, over the last couple of weeks. And tonight, we're going to talk a little bit more about biotechnology. Now, this is something that people don't know a lot about. Uh, We have an absolute uh, brilliant man with us tonight who has a track record that's hard to to replicate, Um, James Hayward. I would call him a rock star of the Long Island business scene, the Long Island science scene. And uh, James, uh, uh, before we get to you, let me read this bio. Okay, because you put this together special for us. Uh, Listen to this, folks. Jim obtained his undergraduate degree as a dual major in biology and chemistry from SUNY at Oneonta. So did I, by the way. Oneonta. Forgot that. I I never knew that. Uh, He completed his PhD in molecular biology at Stony Brook University and received an honorary doctor of science from the same institution 17 years later for his contributions to biotechnology. He was an honorary fellow at the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine, part of the University of London. While in England, he co-founded one of Europe's first biotech companies, which listed on the FTSE. He was the head of product development for the Estee Lauder companies. He was the founder of the Collaborative Group, which included a human protein manufacturer called the Bio Alliance, which was sold to Dow Chemical, and Collaborative Labs, which was sold to BASF. He's been the president, CEO, and chairman of Applied DNA Sciences since 2005. Among Jim's awards was the first Helix Award from the International Biotechnology Organization, and he has twice been elected Entrepreneur of the Year by Inc. Magazine and the Long Island Technology Hall of Fame. He serves on multiple corporate and not-for-profit boards. Welcome, James Hayward, to Radio Jobline. Oh, thanks so much, Scott. It's funny you should mention the rock star thing, because that was really the first career I had in mind. (laughs) But as you can probably tell from there, my hairline kind of stood in the way. (laughs) Uh, Well, a lot of bald people today are very, very big in in, in entertainment. Um, You have a, a storied career as far as I'm concerned, James, and I've been stalking you. Over the years, I follow you. I read your stuff. I, whenever something about you, I read it. You know, because I know you're an important cog in the wheel here on Long Island. You're uh, influential. I would call you an influencer at the very least. And uh, I'd like the the listeners tonight to learn a little bit about biotechnology at the same time as they're learning about you and your wonderful company and all that other stuff. But we have to make it so that they can understand it. So uh, I talk about it sometimes. But um, what is biotechnology? Oh, it's really evolved over the last 30 years. It started, um, you know, with a, a focus on proteins and cellular biology. And now the way science is done, both in academia and in 
commercial companies is really very different. Mm. Again, back to the rock star thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's atypical for companies or universities to pursue rocket scientists mm-hmm. or rock stars in mm-hmm. their individual rights. Mm-hmm. The way a company, the way science advances is it takes a village. And you need a kind of leadership that can interact with all kinds of people, with mathematicians, with uh, information scientists, with artificial intelligence experts, with cell biologists, with molecular biologists. So you have to really be able to relate to people. Uh, It's one of the skills it takes as much as the science. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to lead by example. There's nothing like perspiration works a lot better than intimidation. Mm. So um, biotech really has changed, and it's an amalgam now. On the heels of COVID, the world really changed with the rapid uh, development of messenger RNA. Mm -hmm. The fact that those vaccines work so remarkably well. So, uh, you know, just a few years ago, there were only a few messenger RNA drugs in the national pipeline. Mm-hmm. We're approaching 5,000 mm. after uh, COVID. Is, is there any way, <laughs> excuse me, sorry, is there any way you can tell us how those vaccines were done so quickly? Really came. It really. I think, I think it caught America by surprise. How, how quickly? Yes, it caught everyone by surprise. <coughs> so, if you could, you know, maybe just shed a little light on it. Sure, it caught the scientists by surprise. It mm-hmm. caught the patients by surprise, and it caught the government by surprise. But it was the product, really, of decades, two decades worth of work. Messenger RNA and RNA in general as a therapeutic has been a target for a very long time. But there were central problems that stood in the way. In particular, the chemical stability of RNA. Mm -hmm. And it's still not um, where we would like it to be. But in the few years before the development of COVID, big advances were made in how to stabilize RNA. So that was extremely helpful. And how to deliver it is another challenge. Mm -hmm. How to get it to a particular location in the body. And in the case of RNA vaccines, or really any RNA therapeutic, they generally work by getting into a cell and being expressed then as a protein. So in the case of the COVID vaccines, lots of people have heard of spike, which is the protein that gave the coronavirus its name, gives it its crown. And the spike protein sticks out furthest from the virus. And using that, as the provocateur for immunity was a brilliant idea. Mm -hmm. 
and getting the messenger RNA that encoded for the spike protein and the right form of the spike protein, that was the trick. Mm. So it took a development of delivery systems and engineering of the antigens and a thorough understanding of immunology. Mm. So it's just basically the right time, you know, for something like that to be developed. You know, uh, we, we had a need and boy, the technology was right there waiting for us. Yes, yeah, so the timing was was perfect. And everyone responded. Right. The world responded, really. The WHO hosted meeting after meeting on, uh, in, early in the mornings for all the scientists who were involved in the groups pushing forward the vaccines. Mm. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about your career. So uh, you've had a fascinating career. You, you Tell me about the company in the UK and how that led you here to the States. Sure. You know, I couldn't talk about my career without talking a little bit about my childhood. Mm. I grew up uh, in Queens, and my father ran a delicatessen. The family lived behind the deli. And if you could walk, you could work. Mm. <laughs> and so uh, everyone in the family learned a work ethic very, very early on. Mm. So after I... I did my college degrees, and even then I was a little confused. I started off as a bio major, and then when I was ready to graduate, I added chemistry, and um, that rounded out my view of science, so that I was a good candidate for what was called molecular biology. Did my PhD at Stony Brook there, and uh, then went to postdoc, do a fellowship, with someone I had uh, admired for a decade. It was a dream job to be able to go there. And um, this was a gentleman who had spent, he was a fellow of the Royal Society, a brilliant uh, scientist. And he, his career was always on both sides of the fence. He was very much an academic, but very much a commercial scientist. He invented artificial chocolate. Mm. He invented margarine in the 1940s. Mm. And um, so I learned from him that you could kind of balance both careers. It was a great, great example. Mm. Okay, so then then, uh, you wound up with this company in the UK. Yes, so he and I had a few ideas, wrote a a couple of patents, and it was just at the right time. The biotech revolution had started already in the United States nearly a decade earlier. And so Europe was a little bit behind, and we had a few ideas, wrote them as patents. The patents were published, and (laughs) the money chased after us. Hmm. And uh, we uh, stopped long enough to realize we had something here, and we started a company, and it was very successful. Okay, and then what brought you to the States, to Estee Lauder? Sure, well, uh, I stayed with that company. I had originally told my wife, who was uh, a career professional at Stony Brook herself, well, you know, I'll be gone for a year and uh, do my fellowship. And six years later, um, came back after having started a company in the UK and moved my career along and in the interval we managed to have children Mm -hmm. and um, 
so when I came back uh, and it was clear that I had uh, expenses to meet, I needed to rethink uh, my career direction and I was an expert or am an expert in liposome technology as well and liposomes took over the personal care industry mm -hmm. so um, you know I spent some time helping every major personal care company until Estee Lauder made me an offer I couldn't refuse mm -hmm. okay so you were there for a while and then next step after Estee Lauder well, after Lauder, Lauder taught me a valuable lesson that most scientists never get to learn. First of all, Lauder is a, a location where science gets done. But what's remarkable about it is it gets done awfully fast. Mm. You know, when marketing people take an advertisement on the second page of the New York Times magazine, the product better launch on time. Right. And it includes a bunch of science. And so I learned how to do science fast. And uh, that was very influential for the rest of my career. Very grateful for that uh, experience. Okay. And then, um, so you went, what was the next step after? Well, I, I realized that I could also develop things from myself and uh, take them commercial. And um, so uh, left Lauder with that intention and formed a company to tackle some of the more difficult manufacturing issues, which I knew the personal care companies were struggling with. Mm. And we got very good at tackling tough problems as a group. And we became a major supplier to all of those uh, personal care companies. And we did something that also affected my career at Applied DNA eventually, and that is we diversified into a variety of applications with related science, but different outlets. So we created a division called uh, Clear Solutions, which was a company that worked on ophthalmic solutions using an ingredient that was that now is very popular in personal care called hyaluronic acid mm -hmm. and um, we also created a division for the manufacture of human proteins at very large scale mm. and that became known as the bio alliance and uh, was at a very exciting time because in those days the um, sexy therapies that were coming through the FDA were the cloning of human proteins. Mm. So we did that in one division, and then another division remained focused on the personal care industry, and they all grew so well. Uh, we acquired a company in Rhode Island, in Providence, that had a $150 million manufacturing operation, and um, things grew so quickly that it wasn't too long before office to purchase the company came knocking on the door. Hmm. And, um, you know, we received a couple of offers that just made good sense for the time. And um, then having sold, 
I promised my wife I'd retire, and I cleaned the garage for three weeks, which is about as long as I could do it. <laughs> and then I found um, Applied DNA. Mm, okay. So what was the goal when you founded uh, Applied DNA? Applied DNA started on a very unique, uh, still unique uh, path, but that we since diversified as much as we did at Collaborative. Mm -hmm. uh, Applied DNA began to use a method called PCR. And PCR should sound familiar. From the tests. Yeah. Right. From the COVID test. It stands for polymerase chain reaction. And it's, as chain reaction implies, it's an iterative process that with every cycle doubles the quantity of a particular DNA you're trying to amplify. Mm. So if a cycle takes a minute, and that's about how long it takes, in 40 minutes you can do 40 cycles, mm -hmm. doubling, that's 2 to the 40th, mm. that's a trillion. Mm. So that means that in 40 minutes you can have a trillion times the DNA you started with. So we started by designing little signals of DNA that indicated where something came from. Was it sustainably grown? Was it organic? Uh, was it American? And uh, we utilized that ability to tag materials like cotton, for example, with a small amount of DNA on every fiber that allowed us to track that uh, fiber as it moved along its supply chain through Southeastern Asia and before it came back as your my cotton shirt. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that there was an awful lot of counterfeiting taking place in the marketplace. There still is. And there are companies operating under unethical motives. So, for example, right now in China, the Uyghur Muslims are enslaved people who are used to harvest uh, cotton all year round, paid poorly, and effectively kept in a kind of a concentration camp. Mm. The U.S., the U.K., a number of countries have passed laws that make it a federal crime to import that cotton. Mm. Well, how do you identify it? It's best if you could identify cotton that isn't from the Xinjiang province of China. So we do that by tagging, for example, cotton from the San Joaquin Valley of California. Mm -hmm. We've tagged over 400 million pounds of that cotton. Mm. Or counterfeit semiconductors were finding their way into military weapons and to American missiles. So we began tagging the original semiconductors, and we've been doing that all now for 10 years. It's been a very satisfying business. Mm -hmm. That was the origin mm -hmm. of Applied DNA. All right, let's put a little bookmark. You're listening to Radio Job Line with Scott Possessor. Um, we have Jim Hayward with us tonight. Uh, I can't help but be a fan. I'm just sitting here listening to Jim and looking at him and going, this guy is so brilliant. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's great to have you on Long Island. It's great to have you as part of our landscape here. Um, and, and in the second segment, 
Jim, we're going to talk about all the science that's coming out of applied DNA and, and how it can impact the lives of everybody listening to the show right now. That's so great. we have a lot more to do. Um, again, you're listening to Radio Jobline with Scott Possessor. If you have an idea and would like to be on Radio Jobline, you can write to me, scottp118 at gmail.com. Be happy to have you or, or your idea on the radio show. And uh, also connect with me on LinkedIn. I post the shows after they broadcast, post them on LinkedIn, and thousands of people tune in. I'm very proud of that. So if you connect with me on LinkedIn, it'll show up in your newsfeed. Uh, this name is spelled P-A-S-S-E-S-E-R, if I haven't spelled that enough times here on the radio show. We have a lot more coming up with uh, Jim Hayward and his uh, fabulous company and the technology of biotechnology. Stay with us, folks. We'll be back after this break. Roll away. Welcome back to Radio Jobline with your host, Scott Possessor, right here on LI News Radio. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Radio Jobline with Scott Possessor, and we have a brilliant man in the booth with us tonight, Jim Hayward. He is the, um, well, I read his bio earlier, but he's the chief executive and president of a company called Applied DNA. Uh, oh, the screaming that you're hearing, folks, is the sound of someone chasing a rat outside the studio. Uh, it's kind of comical that this is going on. Uh, and imagine if the Rotunda Gym was filled with people. You, 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 people would be, it's like, it would be worse than a bomb going off. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's moving pretty fast, too. Um, anyway, it's kind of a little comedy there for you, folks. But um, we're talking to Jim Hayward uh, uh, really about some interesting stuff. Now, if you're into science and you're into the application of science into what really is meaningful and powerful in this world. This is the show to be listening to because there's all this biotechnology science that's going on that most of us don't know about, but we also don't know what to do with it. What, what is the science good for? And Jim is going to solve the world's problems in the next 21 minutes uh, with all that, all that cool technology that's happening. So Jim, you have three divisions that apply DNA. We talked about one. Sure. You know, our um, one of the great things about the group of people we are is that our first focus is to make mankind's situation better, if we can, to improve the standard of care in disease, to prevent things like human trafficking and enslavement. And the second thing is to make money. And um, gradually, we are uh, approaching the making money issue, mm -hmm. but um, we've done some, some good things in between. Mm -hmm. So I described for you the issue of tagging and the value that that can uh, present in preventing crime. Mm -hmm. But it required PCR. Then came COVID, and we felt we had an ethical responsibility to respond for the need for diagnostics in COVID since we had spent 10 years mastering PCR and all of its intricacies. So we designed a COVID diagnostic 
and um, it was a good one. We designed a very good COVID diagnostic. Mm -hmm. We like to think it's one of the best. Mm. And we brought it to the FDA and got the EUA approval. We brought it to New York State. And we stood up very rapidly a uh, clinical testing laboratory as another division. Uh, but we recognized what we thought was a business problem that is now turning out to be quite a business problem uh, behind the diagnostic laboratory business. And that is the uh, stranglehold that third-party payers and insurance companies in general have on the rates they pay for diagnostic tests. Mm. So I know of many companies, in fact, um, one of them just laid off 700 people a week ago, mm. that have suffered because they're being paid less than it costs them to run the diagnostic. Mm. So we decided not to pursue third-party reimbursement, but to look at a different model that we thought could have bigger impact, and that is population-scale testing, very large-scale testing. So you can see what is going on in a population. So, for example, one of our important customers is CUNY, the City University of New York. 310,000 students and faculty a very large population. We tested Stony Brook. We tested universities all over Long Island and New York. And there we have but a single payer. Mm. One person writing a check. We have an agreed-upon contract. We know what we're getting into. And uh, the risks on the back end were much, much less. So that's how we began that division. And we've now extended that division into a very interesting area of pharmacogenomics, which promises to change the future of what is often called precision medicine. Maybe you could take just a second and tell us what pharmacogenomics is. Sure. Pharmacogenomics is a way of testing a patient to see how dependent on their genetic composition and the genes they have and the number of copies of those genes and how they're expressing them affects the way they respond to a drug. And we all know instances in uh, uh, chronic depression, for example, where it can be very difficult to choose a drug out of dozens and have it be the best choice from the get-go, so that the patient responds the fastest. Mm -hmm. You have fewer uh, drug reactions if that happens. You have a faster response for the therapy. You have a patient who's happier, a patient who's more compliant with the drug regimen. So we have uh, developed and validated a panel that examines 130 genetic sites and can tell us how rapidly you would, as an individual, metabolize a particular drug so that the physician can make a choice from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Oh, if, 
if there are fast metabolizer of this drug that may not be circulating long enough for them to have a benefit, they might need a higher dose. Or maybe that's not the right drug altogether. Mm -hmm. They need a drug that they metabolize more slowly. And that's what pharmacogenomics does. It's okay, so this is something that could, uh, instead of giving you a drug and saying, oh, gee, it didn't work, let's try this next drug, right? This is going to cut that off at the pass. That's right. Right. That's right. So it will save money. Mm-hmm. You know, the, there have been published studies that show that a few hundred dollar test can result in a 2000 or a $5,000 per year savings on average Mm. you know many of these medications if you look at the medications to treat psoriasis or rheumatoid disease there are dozens of them advertised on tv every night and a course of therapy is between 70 and a hundred thousand dollars per year Mm. on the wrong drug Mm. Um, not a good idea. Yeah, I mean, drugs are the cost, James, is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's there's a, a drug out there for weight loss that I've, I've been hearing about because I'm being a little chunky of a guy. I asked my doctor about it. He said, first of all, your insurance won't cover it. Yeah. It'll cost you $4,000 a month. I said, $4,000 a month? For what? And it's just a little tiny injection, you know, uh, once a week. Or I don't know if I get it, if it's twice a week or whatever. And I just, drugs are out of control. Whatever you can do to control the cost of, of medication. Well, one way is by ensuring that the drug that's prescribed for you is the right one from the start. Mm. And so we have just validated that and we're taking the same approach population scale. Mm-hmm. So we want to work with large institutions. Consider the number of hospitals we have here on Long Island and uh, large groups of people, self-insured employers, over 10,000 people are a great target for us. And it's consistent with what we think is a very good business model. But on top of that, first and foremost, it will elevate the standard of care. Patients will do better faster. Mm. But secondly, you have to consider the economic issue. It will generate a return on investment because there'll be so much less money lost Mm. and so much less time lost to a disease where a patient's joints continue to decay or where a patient's psyche uh, has them taking less joy from every day than they deserve. Yeah. So that's our second division. All right, let's get to the third. <laughs> okay, our third division is really the tip of our spear. Mm-hmm. And it follows closely on the revolution that followed COVID. And that is nucleic acid therapies, DNA or RNA therapies that uh, can be developed very, very quickly that can be changed to improve their behavior in the patient very, very quickly, and that have a very high degree of efficacy. So is this what people are commonly referring to as cell and gene therapy? Well, they are the tools of cell and gene therapy. So the therapy is actually the nucleic acid. But for example, in the production of a messenger RNA therapeutic, like the COVID vaccines. 
Um, there is a central dogma, a little out of date in biology, that says that DNA encodes for RNA, which encodes for protein. And the COVID vaccine is a perfect example. So DNA sequences had to be made that corresponded to the COVID protein vaccine, the mm -hmm. spike vaccine. Mm -hmm. That DNA was then converted in a reaction in a manufacturing plant into an mRNA sequence, mm -hmm. which was the therapeutic. Mm -hmm. The therapeutic actually has to be converted to work. Mm -hmm. So it goes into the human muscle where it reaches the cytoplasm, the inside of the cell. Mm -hmm. And in the inside of the cell, the uh, mRNA is translated into the spike protein, which is secreted into the blood, and it starts the immune response. Mm. So DNA and the form of DNA that we manufacture is unique called linear DNA and has many advantages in this kind of workflow has to first get into the right spot in the body, mm -hmm. into the right location in the cell, be converted into RNA, the RNA converted into protein, and the protein does the job mm -hmm. in this case. There are other situations like rare diseases. Um, rare diseases are much more prevalent than you may realize. You think of a rare disease as something that maybe a few thousand people on the planet have. But, for example, I'm involved in a rare disease in which so far there are six people that have been found with this rare disease. Mm -hmm. And the therapeutic is a nucleic acid. Mm. In this case, it's not going to be expressed as a protein, but it's an mRNA that stops the expression of a mutant mRNA in the patient. Mm. We don't have to go into the science. Mm. But that's the way it works. And it stops the accumulation of a dysfunctional protein that, in effect, gives the patient, a baby, a, a form of uh, galloping Alzheimer's. Mm. So, um, in those rare diseases, you can make these drugs very fast. You could actually make, in a single batch, a lifetime supply of the drug for that one patient wow. because you're making the drug for a single patient. Think of the cost benefits of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and the life benefit. You're mm. restoring a life. Mm. These are the kinds of science coming not just from applied DNA, but from this community. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always referred to Long Island as the DNA corridor. Mm -hmm. It has much of its origins in DNA science and in RNA science. In, in fact, Bill Studier, who was the scientist working at BNL, is the one who discovered the mechanism used to manufacture the COVID vaccines 35 years ago. Hmm. And uh, so Long Island, as a location for us, is a perfect place to be because we have the corridor of institutions like Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories, the Feinstein Institute, the new medical school at Hofstra, mm -hmm. Stony Brook. And it's, 
Medical School, Northwell Hospital, and all the way out to BNL. So in terms of hiring people, in terms of, remember, we started by talking about translational science and how you, you need many different fields to cooperate to be able to make a successful drug. Well, we have all that mm. right here. And that's going to lead us to the letter of intent that you signed for Midway Crossing. Yes, that's a very noble, very exciting project that we're pleased to be a part of. And, uh, you know, I fall asleep praying every night that this becomes real over the next three to four years. I think it could alter the economy of Long Island for generations to come. Tell us what it is. Let, let People have never never heard of it. I never heard of it until you told me about it and when we were talking prior to the show. Sure. Midway uh, Crossing is a concept that's been evolving for multiple years on Long Island. It's got many strong sponsors. But it's the idea of utilizing the space associated with Islip Airport and Ronkonkoma train station. Mm -hmm. So it's got, in its core, a transportation hub. It would have associated with it a conference center and a hotel, which if you look at every major academic institution in the United States that's capable of hosting powerful scientific conferences, they have to have those kinds of assets. Mm -hmm. And then we signed uh, a letter of intent uh, to occupy 100,000 square feet eventually, three to four years from now, of CGMP, that's Current Good Manufacturing Practices space that would allow us to scale all of our manufacturing processes up. Mm. Northwell uh, Hospital um, signed a similar letter of intent days afterward for 200,000 square feet. Mm. And w again, back to the concept of translational medicine, and precision medicine and translational development. This is the atmosphere that you need to have. You need to attract strong players, collaborative players, international relationships, and with a transportation hub, you have that opportunity. You have the opportunity to attract investment funding from New York City. Uh, you have the opportunity to interact with the nearby centers for biotechnology in Boston, uh, for example, and in New York. Um, I think it's a, one of the most exciting concepts that uh, I've seen for the development of the life sciences anywhere in the world and to have it here on Long Island would be a real benefit. So are we still looking for people to sign on or do we have enough? <clears throat> no, um, you can imagine there's a large project, more than $3 billion. So uh, one of the more immediate things is ensuring that there is adequate funding. But of course, none of that happens overnight. That mm -hmm. takes time to develop, and 
it takes passion and lots of people talking about it and uh, trying to bring it along. Well, I'm glad we're getting this out in the media a little bit more, Jim, because if I haven't heard of it, you know, because I read everything. If I haven't heard of it, then it's not out there. You know, I mean, it is in your community, but to the to the three million people that live on Long Island, I bet you most of them don't know about this. Yes, well, the town of Islip just hosted a dinner two weeks ago. Uh, three, four, or five hundred people attended there, and there was a terrific presentation by the developer who's behind the bulk of the concept. And it's those kinds of events that uh, will. Uh, build the attention that it requires, but it it needs the attention of the uh, politicians as well. Steve Ballone has been a great supporter. Uh, we need to get Albany on board. Mm, okay, so this is very exciting, and I'd love uh, you know it. It seemed like Long Island struck out with biotechnology. One of the very big companies left Long Island. I can't remember the OSI, OSI Pharmaceuticals, yes. and that was a black eye for Long Island. And it looks like perhaps what you're doing is going to replace it. We hope so. OSI was a, an acquisition, so that you know, happens inevitably with some companies. But this is a way to make a very dynamic operation that leverages Long Island's history in these sciences. They're first-class players like BNL, Stony Brook, Cold Spring Harbor, and Northwell. And, um, you know, as far as the industries go, and Long Island, um, sometimes they refer to spaces like this as the a bio foundry. Mm. And this has no environmental exposure. Fantastic. And so it's perfect for our high water mark. Jim, thank you so much for being here with us tonight to, to explain all this to us, to introduce the concept of Midway Crossing, which I don't think anybody knows about, and, and at least outside the biotech community. And I'm glad that we broke some news with it tonight. I'd like to see this now in Newsday and in News 12 and, and get, get the, like you said, the politicians involved and such. We have to go, folks. Uh, if you have an idea for Radio Jobline, write to me, scottp118 at gmail.com. Happy to have you on the radio show. We'll be back next week with another show. Thank you so much to James Hayward and to Applied DNA. Have a good week, everybody. Happy hunting. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.